I'm Abhi Seeth, and you're listening to Connected by Imparticle, where we interview the people that help create some of the most beloved brands in the world. These folks have a unique ability to bring together seemingly unrelated people and technologies to deliver some truly amazing results. In order to deliver a memorable customer experience, it's not just good enough to have a best-in-class tech stack. The secret lies in how well your marketing and product teams communicate and work together. Join me in conversation with Adam Griffiths, who shares his insights and stories helping industry-leading brands break down both tech and communication silos to drive the business forward. Adam uh coming to us live from uh from berlin can't thank you enough for joining uh joining me on the pod today thank you it's a pleasure so adam i mean um i i got a chance to catch up with you a couple of weeks ago but before i get ahead of myself um yeah i i want to turn the floor over to you i'd, I'd love a little intro and you know for the audience uh, a bit of what you do Sure. So, uh, yeah, my name is Adam Griffiths. I'm based in Berlin, but originally um, from the UK. And I've been more or less involved in technical marketing projects or product management related things for the past seven years on both the client and the agency side. I've worked across many verticals such as e-commerce, urban mobility, fintech, telecommunications, health and fitness, transportation, and um, I see myself as the bridge between marketing and product. Um, so I primarily focus on the MarTech area. And uh, yeah, I work with a lot of clients uh, that have a specific focus around uh, revenue-driven uh, metrics or usage-based metrics like registrations or user growth, um, as well as this specific goals like launching a new app or gaining a foothold in a key target market and all the uh, technological and process-related changes that go along with that. Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, damn, where do I, where do I go from there? I mean, this is like a, a kid in the candy. I mean, the, the, the reality is, I'm, and I'm sure there's, there's nuances to clients in each of those verticals. I'm sure there's a heck of a lot of commonality too, right? In terms of like what some of the issues are. Um, I guess let's start there, Adam, because I, I think what I'm more interested in and, and the hypothesis, the hunch I have, and, and you can tell me I'm wrong, I'd venture to bet that like there's probably more, there's more commonality in the challenges like your clients are facing across industries, across verticals, whether it's you're talking to a product team or a marketing team. I feel like there's a lot of folks that are like, they're looking at challenges and problems through different lenses and angles, but at the core of it, it's still the same same sort of issue. Um, I guess let's start there. Like, so with all the clients you've helped and worked with over the years, are there any particular, you know, common challenges that kind of come up time and time again? Um, you know, what are those challenges and how have organizations in your experience successfully gone about tackling those issues? Sure. Yeah, you're correct. There are a lot of commonalities. Um, I'd say that, uh, in the, the knowledge area, as well as finding the right tools to do the right job and tool adoption, there's two scenarios which are very common. The first is that a client has purchased a set of tools 
for uh, the app or a product um, and need assistance to properly adopt these tools to reach their KPIs, uh, or they have a trouble understanding how they work. The second is that they have comprehensive teams, but don't have the knowledge of the tool ecosystem. Uh, they know what they want, but not how to achieve it. So these are two very common scenarios. Uh, the other is resources. So resource amongst client teams can also be an issue. Develop a resource, for example, is something that always plays into it. But also uh, often we see an imbalance between demands of marketing and product teams or vice versa. And this is something that I observe a lot. Um, so a lot of it is about developing an understanding between these two teams and how they can work together. Um, as you can imagine, sometimes there's a lack of that. Um, so this is something that I, I like to address since we have product owners or devs that don't necessarily understand marketing team requirements and don't consider the marketing side as part of their product roadmap. Uh, they're more focused on product improvements or feature development and things like that. And then we also have marketing teams that cannot communicate effectively with product teams. They don't know how to make that team aware of their requirements and what they need and why they need it and how it should be a part of that side of things. So these are things which uh, often come up in terms of commonalities. And then of course, given that I'm based here in Germany, I work with a lot of DAC clients. Everyone's favorite is of course, data privacy concerns, which is a very hyper intensified topic here in Germany. Uh, this isn't a route that I necessarily wanna go down today. I think that's a whole other show, but um, yeah. I'm certain people have enough problems uh, without listening to me talk about that for the next 30 minutes. Sure, this sure. This is something that in Germany is a, a very, very uh, intense issue. And in terms of uh, a solution or how to tackle these issues, I think this is a much broader thing to discuss, but you can get a picture from the answers that I give, um, how you can begin to tackle these things. So I don't want to go too much of a, I know, down the rabbit hole here, I guess, but um, yeah, these can be resolved by bringing in someone like myself or another service provider or agency. Um, but of course, it starts with the fundamentals, proper communication, project planning, roadmap planning, use cases, KPI setting or KPI transformation. And um, this is where it begins. And this is where you can really start to identify the issues and start tackling them. And then comes the fun. I want to double click into something you said, which is it's almost like, I think everyone knows at the highest level, like to make that successful, product and marketing do have to effectively work together. And I think you hit on two things, really interesting points there. One from just a people side of it, right? Like PM to growth marketer needs to be able to communicate effectively. Why have I done something this way in product? How does that translate to helping you with your marketing initiatives? Um, and what's that common that language we, we speak, but the tool set thing is really interesting too. And maybe we get into this a little later or, or, you know, we'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll eventually stumble into this, but you're right. Like there's such a different set of tools that these two organizations may be working with. Right. And there has to be data exchange, right? There has to be communication between a data warehouse or the insights that, you know, an analytics platform generates to drive, right, the, the data that an attribution tool or an email marketing tool needs to get to be able to deliver the right message at the right time. I guess, Adam, where, where am I going with this? I'm going down a rabbit hole. Um, <laughs> what, so like, 
walk me through why do you think that's the case i mean is this is this sort of a situation where hey maybe traditionally not too long ago just again i mean the world of ad tech and martech as we know it now was completely different two years ago right like to your point about privacy the world and the things that you could sort of do to be successful even a year ago is very different now right like why do you think traditionally product and marketing sort of struggle uh to figure this bit of it out the people part of it right so communicating with each other but also the hey like obviously i need analytics insights to power my email campaigns like how yeah i think that historically the the way that these teams are structured they're structured very differently um and historically these teams have not necessarily had to have so much communication especially in companies that have been around for quite a while or organizations which have much more of a uh, foothold and have been around for, you know, 10 plus years. The way that we work has changed. The way that teams interact is changing. And especially now when you see a lot of organizations adopting new models in terms of how we work together, such as the Spotify model with the tribes and things like this, it's really changing how teams uh, work together. And these teams historically have not, of course, product teams will work more in, uh, I think, you know, Scrum and Agile. Marketing teams won't necessarily do that. They have different processes, different ways of communicating. And I think that this is um, one of the things which come up is that oftentimes it's a little bit of a cats and dogs scenario. Um, and a lot of uh, what I observe is how these teams work together or lack thereof. And I think that this is a very huge part of um, what you said of the way that we work today is much different from the way we worked two years ago, especially in uh, an ecosystem which is changing very rapidly, not just on the tool side or on the data side, but also on the way people work. Um, not just because Corona has completely changed everything, but yeah. I think that because of how the faster the, the world is moving, it has forced companies to structurally adapt. And I think that the way product teams work is uh, something that is very set in stone. And uh, there's a lot of mindsets there, particularly from you know, certain ways of working, the way people like to work that don't necessarily have an automatic, automatic fit with the way a marketing team works, but it's about finding some commonality there and about identifying a new way to work together. I think that these are two teams in order to take part in transformations that absolutely have to be on the same page. And this is, we're not talking big things here. We're talking even, you know, on the implementation of a certain tool, which can be, you know, used by multiple different teams, but has to involve developers. And it's about understanding why it's important, um, who will be using it and things like this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 it makes a lot of sense. And, um, what I'm hearing here is it's, it's almost, um, I think a lot of it, what's, what's coming across a lot of, I think what you're doing, Adam, is just helping sort of these two, I mean, both from a technology perspective, but from a people perspective, speak the same language or find some commonality in the same language, right? So it's how do you translate a marketing KPI into a spec that product can read and understand 
and get behind that could then deliver, right? Whatever it is, onboarding a new tool or getting a new data set from one system to another, um, sort of communication sort of key into that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's as much about the way teams work uh, and the way they interact, not just with the tools, but with each other as it is about the tools uh, and the goals themselves. Yeah. Yep. So, all right, not to throw, I mean, you know, let's, let's make this a little more interesting, right? Because, you know, it would, wouldn't it be wonderful, right? <laughs> I bet you would kill for this to walk into an organization that's like, hey, Adam, like, we don't have any tools in place. We don't have, you know, any politics or philosophy or, you know, uh, sort of uh, idiosyncrasies in the way we've organized as a team. Like you're starting from scratch, build our organization. You tell me if you've ever seen one of those in reality, but I, I would imagine a lot of what you walk into is, you know, conflicting tools within an organization. Why do you have some data on-prem and some in the cloud? Why do you have four different attribution tools yeah. What I fear that a lot of leaders or, or change agents and companies sort of have to weigh as well, given sort of all the existing legacy infrastructure reports, things that we just sort of have to maintain for the business, like we're not starting from a, a clean slate. Yeah. And so we have to find a way to somehow keep the lights on, do what we're doing in a way um, that doesn't disrupt the business, but you know, continue to improve somehow, right? It can't be we're stuck in this inefficient way of doing things forever, but it also can't be, let's blow everything up and start from scratch. So uh, could you talk about the most challenging aspects of, you know, introducing new technology, especially when there's existing infrastructure and suboptimal processes, and then like any tips that you have for, for brands, organizations that have identified there's clearly a better way of doing this but obviously can't go in and just say, let's rip and replace. Sure. Of course. Yeah. I mean, and that's the... a loaded question, by the way, like I really <laughs> take that wherever you no, want. No, but, no, no, yeah. no, it's great. Um, I mean, the, the clean slate scenario is something that almost never happens. Um, even if it's from a level of, you know, they have, uh, th there's always something in place. It, it's, it's, uh, very rare. It's, 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 it's not going to happen, but I think the the rip and replace scenario is something also that's um, not always necessary. And this is something that I've witnessed across a lot of different projects um, and organizations is that, yeah, the whole idea of rip, rip and replace um, doesn't have to happen. And this comes out of the identification process. So what I will start by saying, uh, the most important thing you can ask, especially when it comes to existing infrastructure that could be ineffective or suboptimal processes is just why. Why is it currently like this? Why is it not being used effectively? Why can it not be changed in some way? Or why are we using it at all? And these are a lot of, um, th these kind of questions, a lot of people especially sometimes don't like to answer, or it could be perceived as negative. But what I would say is that a lot more issues will come out further down the line if you don't uh, challenge these things early on or have an open dialogue about them, whether this is to do with um, a process or tools or whatever. And secondly, if a team or even on a much wider scale, a company is having issues with a process or a tool, but cannot necessarily stop using it or switch everything up, um, it doesn't have to be like that. It's not always about 
changing everything um, or making something unrecognizable or implementing a load of new things. Um, I think it's important to do a kind of opportunity assessment or an evaluation of tools of processes. And um, it's important to understand the process, look at who the stakeholders are which are involved, look at the tools that are being used and at what scale, how are the individuals within the teams using these tools from front to back and understand the dependencies and begin with things like how something is set up, how many users does it have, is it being used correctly or to the best of its ability and it may not have to involve having to switch everything up and implement a lot of new things or rip and replace and of course there could always be a more ideal tool candidate or there could always be a more ideal way of doing things but that doesn't necessarily mean that what you're currently doing is so far off it could be a case of adjusting settings it could be a case of looking at how to do something differently and of course I think flexibility is required in this mindset as well as understanding that you can't always stick to things the same way forever especially when it comes to your tech stack, but um, it's also about learning things and understanding things correctly and how they can be used, identifying where certain things within tools and processes can be improved. You, you have to progress and it's about, um, you know, as much about understanding that you can't do something the same way forever as you can about understanding that you can't use a certain tool the same way forever in order to achieve your goals. It's about um, really taking a look at how something works and if it's not working, why is it being used? Um, these are the things I think that fundamentally a lot of organizations or um, project stakeholders don't necessarily do enough of either because of it's the kind of culture that they're not able to or because they've just not really been able to do that before because they're working within a setup where there's a lot of different tools within the stack. Um, yeah, these are scenarios which happen quite a lot, but the rip and replace, as nice as it sounds, it doesn't necessarily have to be like that. It sometimes requires a more fine-tuned audit-like scenario, an opportunity assessment, and a lot of question asking. I don't know if, you know, everything you there said there, Adam, makes all the sense in the world, but in my lived experience, to your point, it so rarely happens, right? Yeah, and it, right. It, it's, it's, um, you know, you're not saying, you know, there, there's no silver bullet here, right? There's no like, oh yeah, you know, you could say these seven buzzwords and, you know, it, it'll work out. I mean, it really does take stakeholders coming in a room and doing that analysis. But I think you hit on something that's really interesting to me, which is that um, this concept of like change is inevitable, right? And the idea that I think there might have been at the time of where a certain naming convention was created for a certain tool or a certain dependency between you know two or three different systems was created very well intentioned and made all the sense in the world for where the business was two years ago but to your point because i think a lot of and we could, you know, technology is the easy way to talk about it because, you know, I've seen some of the architecture diagrams for some of my customers and there I, I, uh, I almost get dizzy, right? Like I, oh, yeah. I, I fall down sometimes. And, oh, yeah. um, but each of those also represents a group or a business stakeholder, a person behind each of those blocks on a diagram. And um, I guess what I'm trying to say there is uh, 
without, I think, having that continual monitoring of, hey, I know we did this or implemented this because it made sense and solve for this need two years ago. Does that need still exist today? And is this setup still the best way to solve for that? Or does that need not exist at all? And I think, you know, you tell me, but like I've had, I don't do this as much directly as you do, but like, yeah, like there's been like, hey, what does this tool do in your stack? And like, oh, well, you know, somebody set this up two years ago and we don't really know if anyone's using it, but, you know, it's always been set up and, you know, no one really wants to touch it. And I see a lot of like, there's no ownership over a certain thing. It's like, hey, let's just not break what's, or let's yeah. just not kind of touch what's, what's already in place, even Ignor if we have no idea if it's adding any value to anyone. Yeah. Yeah. Ignorance is bliss. Um, I think it's very important to have someone, whether that's uh, someone from the outside, like myself or an agency who can maybe actually do an evaluation of this kind of thing, or have someone within your company who is responsible for internal evaluations of tools and processes and look at how things can be improved because otherwise you're faced with a situation where potentially in two or three years time, you have tools which are irrelevant or processes which are not up to scratch for things like data privacy changes or on the marketing side changes within, you know, Apple or, uh, you know, you know, let's say iOS 14 plus or like these kind of things. It's important that you have someone that is monitoring the ecosystem and actually constantly reevaluating whether what you have is actually up to scratch. And um, this can be someone from within or from without your organization. But I do think that it is necessary to have someone who is taking ownership of um, these kind of internal processes and uh, tool related strategies um, within any organization, absolutely. For anyone listening, I think there's so much value in almost having basically you, right, as a permanent sort of stakeholder in an organization that's saying, hey, look, I am not politically affiliated, if you will, with, you know, marketing or, or product or anything. Like, I have no skin in the game. I'm just objectively looking at all the tools, all the processes at my organization. Because I think what happens, though, in practice in a lot of places, well, if I'm somebody in marketing, like, who am I to go into criticize, right, another department or another team. And I think oftentimes that can come across as, let me go start throwing, you know, stones at your glass house, right? And see, Absolutely. so I, I don't know if like you, you find that. And I think there's so much value in what someone like you does, because you're not coming in and saying like, marketing's the best department and product isn't up to snuff. Like you were just looking at this. And again, you're sort of like coming in for a defined purpose, which is, you have goals to meet as a business, every department's yeah. aligned to that. Let's go figure out where the gaps are. And it doesn't matter which department that necessarily falls into. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's very important to be tool agnostic and also uh, not be finger pointing at you know any particular team or department. I've seen and been involved in situations where a lot of the faults are of product nature and there's things to do with the product which are causing uh for example users to 
not want to continue using a particular app. Um, but also, uh, I can say equally on the marketing side, there's also a lot of mistakes that happen and nobody wants, uh, you know, uh, someone from the marketing team going to the uh, data team and then being like, you know, this is not what we want to do or this is not what, uh, you know, is working. And it's about having someone who can keep tabs on being able to optimize and innovate with processes and uh, and as much as with tools. And I think that, yeah, it doesn't matter who that person is, but it's important to have someone who is um, not affiliated particularly with any one team or someone that has a long history or favoritism with a certain tool or a certain way of doing things. Um, and I think that's where uh, someone like me as a MarTech consultant, if you will, or any other kind of consultant can come in with this kind of mindset. And um, yeah, this is why it's important to have such a, a role or have someone who can uh, be hired in to take a look at these things and um, see where things can be improved, not just on the uh, marketing side, but also on the product side when it comes to uh, the way someone is tracked or highlighting that, you know, this is broken within the app and, you know, you're going to lose users if you don't fix this. Things like that is is equally as important. Okay. I think we've beaten the, the sort of people <laughs> and <laughs> organizational processing to death. And, and you know, look, I, I mean, for the listeners out there, I... I don't think anything we talked about today is, is rocket science or um, particularly complex, but it's, it's uh, you know, complex and difficulty aren't necessarily tied together. Like something could be very simple to understand yet very difficult to do. And I think, yeah. and if I had to sum it up, like the difficulty is, yeah, how do we build, I think, insofar as organizations can build, whether that is bringing in, you know, someone like yourself or building this process into their own internal makeup, but it's like building more of that connective tissue and incentivizing and creating the right processes and system that sort of facilitates, and let's just keep it to MarTech, sort of a, a product team working with a marketing team, right? And I think to your point, that's a relatively new concept. Like this is not something that maybe an organization that's been around for 50 years, 30 years, 100 years had to do when they were a startup, right? I mean, this is not the way um, organizations had to work together because this was ultimately not the way, it, it, the way the world communicated with their audience, right? Their customers. Yep. Uh, has fundamentally changed. And yes, I mean, I think COVID's rapidly accelerated that for a lot of different organizations. But I, I, I think we can all agree, like, I don't know if you could live in the world today of tech and data and really be skating ahead of the puck, if you will, uh, without these two teams co communicating with each other. And so it's, um, yeah, I think that's the, the biggest takeaway I had from this part of our conversation so far, which is that it has to happen. There's a lot of reasons why it doesn't happen. Um, and, you know, I, I think whatever your solution is, like you have to start by, you know, how, how do we get these teams to talk effectively to each other? And there has to be some attention paid to that. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. But I think that you, your, your summary is correct. There is 
uh, fundamental parts which are often overlooked and uh, in terms of processes and technical documentation and a lot of building blocks sometimes are not built in the right way or um, are not there at all and I think that um, yeah this is something that is sometimes overlooked and then you get further down the road and then you realize you know hold on like something's not quite right or you know um, why have we got all this stuff um, and this is um, yeah this is kind of I don't know where I'm going with this but this is um, a scenario that a lot of people end up with yeah hundred uh, percent. Okay. Completely moving to something else. And I, I had like, as a, as a, as a customer success manager, sort of in the thick of, you know, working with clients across all their headaches with ad tech and MarTech, one of the, I, I couldn't let you go without talking about, um, I think a topic that's like very near and dear to our heart, maybe for the, the ad tech and MarTech folks out there near and dear to theirs too. Could you for the listeners maybe that aren't so close to this world, like, could you explain or define in your words, like what attribution means to you? Like, well, uh, what are we trying to do here when we talk about attribution? Yeah, sure. Okay. So um, let's, let's take a look at this from the publisher view. Uh, you have a lot of users coming to, let's say your app and you're running a lot of campaigns across a lot of different channels, maybe some CRM initiatives and, um seeing all these sources bring you traffic um but it's about identifying which channel is the most interesting so with all the users coming to your app and users doing in-app actions you would like to know which sources are influencing the app install or the purchases that are happening within the app um of course you know a user uh they could have seen the ad on one or two or more channels or via your website, it doesn't matter. Um, attribution is about defining a unique source of action by a user. So um, it's important because a user can be targeted by many channels and each channel, excuse me, each channel can uh, then claim a user. So if a user saw an ad on Google, but installed your app after looking on Instagram, this could be an issue since both channels will say that they created an install for you. Um, so attribution is about identifying the correct user source. Um, yeah, you wanna be able to attribute users to a particular source. You wanna be able to track key events within your app to understand which source is responsible for creating valuable actions, such as purchases, registrations, et cetera. Um, so it's about determining a certain action, whether that's a page visit, app install, um, it's not important, but yeah. it's about, um, yeah, like whether it's the result of a certain media source or engagement and attribution, it's essential um, and it's still essential for optimizing user acquisition, re-engagement uh, and results. So it will help you decide where to invest your money and determine the success of a campaign. And it will also tell you how much money you spent on each advertising channel and, and you know, the impact that it had. Yep. I guess that's it. <laughs> no, 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 no. Sorry. That was such a no. I Yeah. I, I, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, that's it. <laughs> no, no, that, that's it. Well, listen, uh, we could, you know, may, maybe in the future, we, if we stay in the, in our respective industries long enough, maybe we, we, we co-author a book on attribution, right? But it's like, Hey, everyone's got a limited budget. Everyone wants to 
drive whatever person to do some key thing, right? Whether that's making a purchase or installing their app, there's some goal. Yep. Why you are spending money on getting your brand or your product out into the world. Instead of throwing that money into the ether and hoping and praying that, uh, you know, that you'll hit your, your goal of a million subscribers or whatever it is, it's let's deploy our money, but let's get feedback on that. So what's my return Absolutely. on investment, right? And fundamentally, the better you could get as an organization on understanding return on investment for your brand presence to the world, if you will, uh, the better you can get at spending less on the things that aren't really successful for you and more on the things that are. And, you know, I, I think the goal for everyone is, yeah, how do we make sure we get the most purchases uh, in, you know, a given set of time or the most installs, whatever that goal is for you. Yeah, it's about measurement. Uh, it's, it's about measurement. And I, I think that that's the most important key takeaway when considering attribution is how to then measure. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. So, okay, Adam. So then just to make this valuable for the audience, what yeah. would you recommend as sort of a, a crawl attribution goal or aspiration? How could you take attribution to the next level? And then sort of what's like ideal state for you uh, or as close to ideal as you can be in the current climate. So what's sort of nirvana for attribution? Yeah, I think um, where we'll begin is firstly for attribution to work it's important to have a tracking concept in place with key conversion goals in the user journey and um, make sure that what you are tracking is relevant. Uh, for example, if you are an e-commerce brand, um, you know, you tracking views to the help page is not necessarily helping the marketing side. It's great for customer experience, but this is not relevant for your campaigns. I also think that it's important to understand uh, different rules surrounding things like iOS and Android and, um, you know, know the implications of these changes that are going on within the ecosystem because tracking and attribution, it's not getting any easier. Um, and I think that it's important to have an understanding of what's going on within the ecosystem in order for you to put together this kind of concept. Um, so having knowledge about these changes and trying to keep ahead of the curve will uh, maximize your chances of getting attributions in an ever-changing, difficult environment. And this is what I would say uh, in terms of a crawl is, um, yeah, you can't track what you don't understand. So if you can't track or understand tracking, you can't measure attribution and you can't make use of the data. So my first point is, yeah have something in place and understand what it is completely that you want to do that makes sense and understand what is going on within the ecosystem. Um, secondly, just to come back to a point that you mentioned, I would not rely on channel attribution. Um, all of them will try and claim the same install or download or, uh, you know, many of them now are self-attributing networks. And I think that it's important to not rely on channel attribution. Um, this is uh, inaccurate, uh, especially as a as a publisher. Um, so look to yes. Facebook and Google aren't necessarily best friends. <laughs> they're, yeah, not, they're not sharing yet. Exactly, exactly. There's a lot of uh, conflicts, uh, let's say. So this is very important, and which leads me on to I think the the key second takeaway um, is look to have a measurement partner implemented within your tech stack so that you can measure attribution effectively. 
Um, this will be key in being able to help you understand attribution. And this can only take place after you have a concept for what it is that you're trying to do. Um, I also think that it's very important that you connect all your marketing channels and your media efforts to the measurement partner, mm. as well as implementing events within the measurement partner that you want to track users. So have trackable events within your app that you can track users, also have them within the measurement partner and connect your channels. Um, this is something that I think is a key takeaway is having a tool in place that will help you attribute users do not rely on the channels. Um, it will right. not help you. And I think third and final point, um, without going into too much of a crazy, crazy rabbit hole is understand and adjust uh, things like the attribution, reattribution, and the inactivity windows within the tool once you've implemented it. It's important to experiment, um, understand the results for each channel and for your product in general, um, play around with the settings and um, don't just think that you've implemented this tool. Um, it's measuring X, Y, Z, that's fine. Um, it's about innovation and optimization. You cannot just plug in and play. You have to experiment and uh, then you can get some results. And then once you have these results, you can really, really start to analyze. And this is what I would say is uh, a third and final best practice, so to speak, is of course, I could now go and say, okay, it's about connecting this tool and this tool and, you know, sending this data here, et cetera. That is, I would say something that comes a little bit later. Um, I think it's important to experiment, get data, look at it, understand how you can adjust certain settings, really get to grips with what you have implemented, especially if it's something that's a bit, you know, zero to 60 type scenario where you did not have anything in place to begin with. Um, really understand what it is that you're doing here um, and adjust things like the attribution, reattribution, inactivity windows. Um, you know, realize how you can make sense of the data. That's that's the key point. And I think that's such a nice bow on what we talked about here, which is that whether it's a product team or a marketing team or a particular technology, yeah. in an ideal state, those things never operate in a silo. Yeah, and absolutely. really that, that third point you made there, Adam, um, around attribution should be a component of, of data that you consider to how your whole product experiences, how you portray yeah. yourself to your target audience. Um, because to your point, maybe it's not that a particular channel is necessarily bad at driving your users to it. It's just that once they finally get to some key point in the journey, there's a huge drop-off. And that may have nothing to do with how you're targeting your users and, and acquiring them into your page. It just may be that it's really hard to navigate to the, the product or complete a purchase or whatever action it is. And um, Absolutely. Like you a know, user cannot complete their profile because a certain button is not working. Uh, right. These are all things that making, can, can all amount to something. And I think that that's uh, another just sorry one thing i forgot no of course <laughs> at, at this stage you can also start to make use of all the secondary data that's being collected and make use of the parameters that you've implemented within the measurement partner and um yeah this is the kind of data that is collected you can analyze it and see how you can optimize what you do based on the settings and 
based on the placeholders that you have within the measurement partner, um, as well as the events that it being monitored within the app. And this, like you just mentioned, is exactly how you start to innovate. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. So Adam, I realize we're, we're close to time, but if you have a couple more minutes, I promise now we're, we're going to go to the fun, fun part of this. Uh, sure. It's called, I'd love to know for Adam as a consumer, uh, what's your, your favorite brand or experience and, and why? Yeah, sure. Um, oof. So, or one I, of your favorite, right? I, yeah, I yeah, be- no, no, sure. It's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a great question. Um, I think that I, do you know, I, I do have one that I think is very nice. And I think that it's something that is very widely used by a lot of people, especially in our industry. I have to say that I do love ClickUp. Um, I think they clearly have a very good product team that are very good at releasing improvements and continually optimizing their product. And the UX is great and I use it every day. So I would say that ClickUp is something that I, I, I really value in terms of the experience that I have with it. Um, and I could say, I think the exact same for uh, Miro, which I think is great for concepting for the, for the exact same reasons. But I think in terms of, I know if I was to say something that I have recently discovered, uh, which is an app that I'm going to use, especially when I'm in other countries, is an app called uh, World of Mouth, which I think was uh, uh, brought, to, brought to life by a food critic. Um, I think it's a really cool concept. It's especially if you love food like like I do, which is a chance for people to share food insights from around the world. And uh, in any city that you travel to, you can go on this app and it's got suggestions by people. So it's 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 very nice and it just looks very very cool. It's like uh, if the New Yorker had a, a food recommendation app. So uh, yeah, I, I wow. really like that. I think that that's, I know you've got three and that's enough, I think. <laughs> no, hundred percent. Miro, I know, funny story about Miro. I just, uh, one of our design guys, actually, when we were birthing the concept of this connected podcast, uh, he was like, let's spin up a Miro board. And I'm like, what, what's, I, I thought Miro was like, uh, I don't know. To me, Miro, some some building I remember in Miami from many years ago. So I'm like, what the heck is Miro? And then we actually ended up like creating swim lanes and like whiteboarding ideas for the concept. So I, I'm with you on Miro. I, I think that's a really nice product. I will check all of these out. Uh, yeah, and you're you're with me on the foodie thing. I mean, the yeah. as soon as we hop off the call, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to download uh, World of Mouth. But um, all right, Adam, promise we're going to wrap with this. Um, so I'm going to ask you five questions. They're all rapid fire and they're usually a choice between two items. So say what's on your mind. There's no shame, you know, no judgment here. Um, and uh, let's, let's give it a rip. So, okay. First question, um, pineapple on pizza. Yes or no? 100% yes. Come on, man. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> I'm not one of these people that thinks it's weird. I'm sorry. I think it's delicious and you're a fool to think otherwise. Love that. Love that (laughs) take. Amazing. All right. Um, Winter or summer sports? Oh, come on, summer. Like being from the UK, you have to value every single minute bit of sun that you have. So uh, summer. I'm I'm with you. I'm with you. I don't know. You I may maybe you're like an avid skier who or something wants, who, in Switzerland. And... No, no, no. Who, <laughs> wants, who who wants to play sports in the cold? Come on, not even the people that are paid to do that. 
I'm uh, listen, as a guy that grew up in Florida uh, and played tennis his whole life, I uh, you're you're not getting a disagreement from me on this. So okay, um, good. All right. Uh, you know, I should have asked asked you this maybe before we hopped on the podcast, but I'm gonna give it a try. I don't know if you're a huge huge NBA basketball fan, but near and dear to my heart, LeBron or MJ. I will have to take myself out of this question. I don't know enough about it and I probably care even less truthfully. So like, yeah, sorry. Um, Yeah. Come back to me when you want to talk about football or as you call it, soccer. As I call it soccer. Well, okay. (laughs) Hold on. Hold on. For the European uh, audience that I am trying to grow for this podcast, uh, scratch MJ or LeBron. Give me uh, Ronaldo or Messi. Messi. Fair enough. Fair enough. With absolute conviction. Sorry. It's just cooler. Yeah. <laughs> All right. All right. Fair enough. There you oh. go. Um, frozen yogurt or ice cream? Ice cream. Yeah. I have the best ice cream place near me. Uh, it makes it makes trying to maintain a healthy lifestyle very difficult. Uh, by far the, the best uh, the, the best ice cream in Berlin. So if you uh, anywhere near Neukölln, um, yeah, check out Ice Rix. Uh, it's uh, going to blow your mind. Ice Rix. All right. All right. Will do. And uh, Matt, it's almost like you read my mind with the foodie thing because I'm a huge foodie. Every guest on the podcast gets this. And my goal, uh, you know what I mean? Next time I'm in Berlin or, or wherever we are in the world, like we got to share a meal. But um I have to ask, favorite restaurant um, sort of in Berlin? Oh. Or, or, or you know what, or, or, no, or the no. UK. I'll give you sort of both. No, no, no. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go Berlin. Berlin. Okay, no, yeah. I've been here long enough. It's my home now. It's All uh, right. uh, no. Um, oh, my God. Two seconds. Yeah, uh, take it. Take your time. Because I, 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 like, I, I, I write a list of all these restaurants. Adam, next time I'm gonna we'll, we'll make it happen somewhere in, in, in the next wherever we meet up. Yeah. Uh, we we got to do a meal, but but yeah, you got to give me your it's favorite big, restaurant. It's a big question. It's a big question. Um, do you know what? I'm not gonna I'm gonna completely disregard any kind of you know fine dining, nice establishment. Um, enough, yeah. I'm gonna go for so um, anyone who who's been to Berlin or lives in Berlin know that you know, a good kebab, you're going to get a good kebab everywhere. Um, everyone claims to have the best kebab, but I can tell you that the best kebab in Berlin is Royam. Royam in Schöneberg, not the one in uh, Prenzlauberg, the OG Royam in Schöneberg, because of all the graffiti on the walls and all the grease that's in the kitchen, that's the best kebab. Um, if you want to listen to Deutschrap at a very, very loud volume and be surrounded by a lot of people doing a lot of hand-to-hand business and <laughs> delicious food. Royam in Schöneberg, and honestly, it's gonna it's gonna change your life. I am not saying that out of anything but sheer love. It is hands down easily top three for me in Berlin places to eat. That is fabulous, and yeah, listen, it's it's gonna happen. We're, we're gonna do this we're we're gonna bring this to berlin and we abby abby when you're here i'm taking i'm taking you to royam we have to be, go to royam yeah, yeah among uh, other I, things but we're we're, we're gonna do royam for sure yeah 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 absolutely royam i think is uh it's key uh and i i'm a huge huge advocate i think that like you know restaurants it's 
there's many here and there's a lot of good cafes, but Royam for me is definitely up there in terms of food. It's uh, I've never had a kebab like this. And uh, some people will say Mustafa's is better. It's not. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh, hot take. <laughs> Come yeah. on, shout shout us out on uh, on on social if you disagree. But yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Come and get it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh man, Adam, I uh, man, I can't thank you enough for uh, for making the time today, sharing some insights, wisdom. So, wrapping this up, I'd I'd love to understand sort of what's what's next for you. Yeah. Um. So. I'm very excited to be involved uh, in the near future with a, a large brand here in Berlin with a global presence. So I, as of September, I'll be working uh, with them. I'm very excited, but for that, you'll have to uh, yeah wait for the LinkedIn update, I think. So yeah, please feel free to add me on LinkedIn. I'm more than happy to speak with uh, anyone and hopefully, uh, yeah, hopefully get to speak with many of you. Um, but first, I'm taking some time off in August and visiting Mexico for the first time. Speaking of which, I will shout out my girlfriend, Giselle. Hello. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> yeah, easily, easily the smartest person I know. Uh, also very experienced working, working within the same field. And I will probably be dead in a ditch somewhere without her. So yeah, I have to give her a shout out. But please uh, give me an ad on LinkedIn. Um, feel free to give me a follow. And uh, very excited for what's coming in the near future. Awesome, Adam. Well, best of luck. Uh, yeah, for those listening, we'll include Adam's link in the sort of episode description. So, um, man, can't thank you enough for joining. And uh, oh, thank you. Yeah. Thanks so much for listening to this conversation from Connected by Emparto. For more on this episode, you can check out the show notes and transcript on our blog. You can also subscribe to the podcast on any major podcast player. If building great customer experiences is important to you, sign up for our monthly newsletter, Mpulse, which includes a very short list of the best blog articles, use cases, and industry reads from throughout the month. Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll see you next time.